If you're moved by stories about how God changes people's lives, you're going to love my conversation with Dan Hanneken. Dan and his wife, Stephanie, have been attending The Crossing since 2006. And in 2012, Dan started Into Action. Into Action is a ministry that works with men who recently were released from prison and helps them become productive members of our community. Dan has a heart for ex-cons because he is an ex-con. He wants to help men reintegrate into society because he tried to do that on his own and failed twice. Dan wants to help prisoners follow Jesus because it's during his first stint in prison that he started following Jesus. This is a story of God's redemption. It's a story of how God uses unlikely people. It's a story that reminds us that no one is outside of God's grace. And finally, it's a story that will leave you wondering how God might be calling you to serve him. Dan, thanks for sharing your story with us today. Now, I know that you have kind of a normal family, but I wouldn't say that you were a normal kid. Tell us about that. Well, I was a mess as a kid. I was raised in a decent family, two happily married parents, uh, good morals, not a Christian family, but a good moral family. But I was lying and cheating and fighting and stealing as far back as I could remember. I had a lot of social anxiety when I was a kid, uh, never really felt part of. And then at the age of 14, I tried alcohol for the first time and it set me free. I began drinking very heavily. Uh, that led to drug abuse and I just went down that road for a while. Started getting in trouble, started getting DWIs and arrested for different things. I began bouncing around the country, running from the law, and I was pretty effective at that up until the age of 26. And at 26 years old, I was involved in a drunk driving car accident in which I had a head-on collision and five people were hurt and sent to the hospital. So this DWI that resulted in this car accident, that's what led to your first stint in prison? The first time I went to prison was for the DWI, and I was also sentenced to, uh, convicted of five second-degree assault charges, and those are for the people that were injured during that accident. So what's your time like in prison? Uh, you know, prison time sucks. It, it, it was pretty miserable, but it wasn't all bad. I heard about Jesus for the first time when I was in prison. I was locked up for three and a half years. I was able to go to a lot of church services during that time. I could go to church every day, some days even twice a day. I surrounded myself with some other Christian inmates and we spent a lot of time studying the Bible and memorizing scripture. At the end of three and a half years, I walked out the gate knowing that I was never going back, hmm. that I learned my lesson. So how'd that turn out? Not too good. Uh, Almost immediately upon my release from prison, I was back to doing drugs, back to doing crime, and I was back in prison within a year. So why do you think it didn't work for you? You know, there's a lot of challenges when people are released from prison. It's not really easy to transition from a prison environment, a life of drugs and crime, into a law-abiding life. But, but more significant to that was the, the faith that I had developed was off a little bit. Uh, I believe that I could do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me, that old things had passed away, all things had become new. And when I walked out of prison, I thought as a Christian that 
everything was going to be different automatically. Uh, so you, you get out of prison, you end up doing drugs, get right back in prison, uh, you get out, and you go back a third time. So tell us about that third time. How, how is it different? What's the sentence? Just tell us about it. So the third time was a lot more significant. Uh, because I had been in so much trouble, uh, they were they were going to sentence me to a long time in prison. 36 years mm. is what my sentence was. The judge, however, had mercy on me and sentenced me to a long-term treatment program in prison. That would take about 18 months. What that means is if I complete the 18-month treatment program, I don't have to do the 36-year sentence. How was your faith the third time? I was not walking with Jesus at the time. I had come to believe that Jesus wasn't working for me. So, so you're in this treatment program, and I guess you successfully complete it? I did complete it, but it didn't come without challenges. I was in a significant amount of pain when I was in prison. And when Where's I was, the pain? Well, I know now that it was a brain tumor, but at the time it was undiagnosed. I would go back and forth to the medical unit in prison complaining about the pain, and they determined that I was just drug-seeking, and I was notified that if I kept going to the medical unit that they would kick me out of the drug program, which means I would have to do my 36 years in prison, so I quit going to medical and just gritted my teeth and made it through. You get out that third time, and wh wh where do you head? You're released from prison, you're on your own. What's your plan? So things were different when I was released from prison the third time. I went from knowing that I would never go back to prison to believing I could never stay out of prison. And I was convinced I'd become one of those people that was just gonna go in and out of prison for the rest of my life. So because I knew I was gonna go back to prison, I just wanted to have some fun when I got out. My intentions the day that I was released from prison was to get a pizza, to get a hooker, and to get some cocaine. And that's what I, well, I got the pizza, and when the pizza came, I was in so much pain, I couldn't eat the pizza. I decided at that point it probably was a waste of money to buy a hooker, and I decided to not get any cocaine as well. So this pain that you're in, uh, what, what are the symptoms? What, what, what else goes along with it? So the brain tumor caused me to go almost completely blind. Uh, my right side would go numb from time to time. Mid-stride, I'd be walking, and all of a sudden, I'd just go down. A lot of pain at the base of my skull. Felt like a 220-volt shock would, would zap me. It dropped me to my knees. It would cause me to vomit involuntarily. Uh, so shortly after my release from prison, within a week or two, I walked to the emergency room to try to get some help. They help you? Uh, kind of. Uh, I went and, and met with the triage team in the emergency room. They did some preliminary testing, I guess, asked me a lot of questions, and pretty much they were going to send me on my way and on my way out. They set me up with an appointment with a neurologist six months out. And I remember hearing that I was gonna have a six month appointment with a neurologist and just my perspective of time back then, I just thought that was outrageous. I 
thought, you know, how do you know where the neurologist is going to be in six months? And how do you know where I'm going to be in six months? And, and how do you know this hospital is even going to be here in six months? That just seemed outrageous to me. But anyway, uh, before I left, they instructed me that this was a, this was a teaching hospital. And they asked if I would mind seeing a resident on my way out. And I said, no, that would be fine. So when I go to meet with the resident, he shines a light in my eye and he sees something that the other doctors had not. And so he called the other doctors in and it turns out that I had a condition called hydrocephalus, that's swelling of the brain. And when this resident shined the light in my eye, the cones in the back of my eye were, were pushed inside out. And that's what he recognized. So at that point, they immediately admitted me into the hospital. Uh, I was told at the time that had I not made it to the hospital, I probably would have had uh, just a month or less to live. The brain tumor was the size of a tennis ball. It had compressed my spinal cord significantly, and, and that's what was causing a lot of the problems. So you go to surgery pretty quick? Reasonably quickly. It took about two weeks. They, they gave me some meds to help the swelling go down before they did the surgery. Uh, I had a meeting with the brain surgeon before the surgery, and he was explaining to me, you know, what the process might look like and, and the risk involved. And he told me he's not a numbers guy, but he did tell me that I may or may not live through the surgery. He told me that I may or may not get my vision back, that I may or may not ever walk again, and that I may or may not ever talk again. And at the time, Keith, I had no desire to live. And I remember telling the doctor that I was fine with the first option, live or die. But if I was going to live, that I wanted my vision, I wanted to be able to talk, and I wanted to be able to walk. And the surgeon kind of smirked and told me that he really wasn't providing a menu for me to choose from. He was just letting me know what the risks were. You got to love a doctor with a sense of humor. So obviously you survived the surgery. I did survive. Uh, I remember waking up and I remember being disappointed when I woke up. I was really hoping that this might be my out. I believed in Jesus enough that I thought I might go to heaven if I died during that surgery. And I was tired. I was wore out. Uh, I had tried to do the Christian thing. I tried to do the right thing and I just, it, I couldn't make it happen. Uh, I thought if I died during the surgery, my parents could have some peace, that it wasn't a police shootout or a drug overdose. And, and I was really conflicted that I lived through that surgery because I knew that there were children in that hospital that weren't going to survive, and that created some real spiritual conflict for me. Yeah, so you're looking around at these kids who haven't really done anything wrong, they're suffering and dying, and here you are, an addict, a guy who's been in a car wreck because you were driving drunk, and, and you're wondering, why, why me, right? I mean, why should I live? I felt like I was a guy who had not done anything worthwhile in his life and did not deserve to live, and you're right. There were children, and innocent children in that hospital that weren't going to live, and I became very angry with God, uh, but I... You know, it was at that time that I began to realize that there I was playing God again. 
uh, God of my own life, God of the hospital, picking and choosing who I think should live and who shouldn't live. And, and there was an illustration that came to mind at that time. And, and I envisioned this book, you know, a large book. And I thought about how much information I have about what's really going on in the world if this book contained all the, all the information. And I have about one letter worth of information, not a word, not a paragraph, not even a page in a thick book, but, but I represent about one letter on a page of information. And here I am trying to act like I know the whole story. And it was at that point that I began to believe again that, you know, God is in control, uh, that God knows what he's doing. I don't understand this, but I kind of threw my hands up and, and said, okay, uh, you, you must have a reason to do what you're doing and you must have a reason to, to cause me to survive through this. So it's about this time that I meet you. You, you. you start dating Stephanie, who's now your wife. You come to the crossing, we meet. And the crossing was a bit of a different experience for you that you were used to. The crossing was very different. Uh, the church services that I had been exposed to were all in prison, uh, and they were all pretty charismatic, prosperity gospel type services where if you had enough faith, anything was possible. Uh, that obviously didn't work for me. I went back to prison twice with, with that type of belief system. But at, at the crossing, I was, I was exposed to a, a very different type of teaching that aligned with the life that I was living and my reality a whole lot more. Mm. Um, a couple things that, that I think about with as, as central to that was one, I used to use Jesus as a means to an end. I, I had these goals, I had these desires in my life, and my hope was that if I trust in Jesus, he can help me get to where I wanna go. What I learned at the crossing is what my heart really longs for is him, that Jesus isn't a means to an end. He is the end in and of himself. And, and wow, it, it just makes me feel so good just even talking about, you know, knowing that now and being able to walk in that a little bit, that, that it's God who is filling my heart and, and filling my life and that with Jesus, you know, all those other wants are secondary. It's really interesting how much we're alike that I guess all of us have to come to that conclusion that there's not something else out there that is going to satisfy us. It's not career, it's not family, it's not money, it's not uh, uh, attractiveness, that what we really want, whether we realize it or not, is a relationship with Jesus. And so I think that's just something we all have to find out on our own or have to have God teach us. So at this point, you're working for the Department of Corrections. I did start working for the Department of Corrections as the reentry coordinator for the state. Uh, part of my responsibility there was to go around to different communities in Missouri and help prepare them for the offender population, people being released from prison so that uh, the communities could be more welcoming. Uh, to these individuals. Did you like that job? Uh, I did like that job. I, I thought it was my dream job, but it, it became problematic when I would 
be expected to share my story uh, to these communities, which is which is a pretty powerful story, and, I, and you know it was engaging. But as a state employee, I was not allowed to talk about my faith when I would share my story. And my story is not my story without my faith. And I tried to share it without talking about my faith. And it just seemed very disingenuous. So you, you, you're stuck in a job where, that you like, and yet you can't tell your whole story. Um, where does that go? How does it change? So I had become a, a member of a men's group. That there's actually five of us began meeting a, a number of years ago. And we'd been meeting for a couple of years at this point. And you know, this was a place that, that we could all share where we were at in life and what we were doing. And, and I remember sharing with my men's group the, the conflict that I was having. And they, of course, asked me, well, why don't you just get another job? And I reminded them that I'm a prior persistent violent offender, that just getting another job wasn't that easy for me. Uh, this this middle-level management at the Department of Corrections was probably as good as it's going to get for me. And they said, well, if you could do anything, what would you do? And I said, well, my dream down the road would be to start my own Christ-centered reentry program where we could you know, provide services to people right here in Columbia that are getting out of prison. They asked me, what's stopping me from doing that? I told them, well, money is stopping me from doing that. And I was really surprised by their response because they said, well, take money off the table. Now what's stopping you? And I thought I knew what they meant. <laughs> and I said, are you serious? And they said, yeah. And I said, well, why don't you give me six months to put something together? So these guys in this men's group, they put up the money to help you start this Christ-centered uh, re-entry program that now we know as Into Action. It all started in our men's group, yes. My guess is that uh, some of the people at the Department of Corrections were a little surprised by the change. I had several people in my life at the time, smart people, wise people, some of them at Department of Corrections, some that I had met through my position at Department of Corrections, that I trusted. And I went to these individuals to tell them what my plan was, and, and they unanimously uh, decided that uh, it was a really dumb idea <laughs> to leave the Department of Corrections, a steady, secure job, mm -hmm. to start a nonprofit called Into Action to help people released from prison. But you did it anyway? I did do it anyway. And I remember the last conversation I had with a guy who I still respect very much. After I told him what I was planning on doing, he just kind of looked at me and he said, that is really risky. And I remember not only thinking to myself, but saying to him, what's riskier for me is not doing what I think God wants me to do. And, you know, I think back, it's surprising that I would say that because I didn't know that that's what God wanted me to do. I might have had 51% assurance mm -hmm. But, you know, I was really on the fence, like, does God want me to do this or not? And I kind of thought he did. But, you know, I, I just didn't know. But, but that's but how I, it kind of is for all of us, right? I mean, we're never confident. We're never 100% sure. That's why it's called a step of faith. 
And you took that step of faith, and out of that came Into Action. So tell us just a little bit about what Into Action does today. Yeah, so Into Action is, if not the most respected, one of the most respected efforts of its kind across the state. Uh, we provide transition services to people recently released from prison. We're a Christ-centered program. We absolutely have an eternal perspective. But we also recognize, and I recognize from my own experience, that when people are released from prison, they have immediate and basic needs that need to be addressed right away if we're going to have any chance at all in seeing them be successful. So, so it's a holistic program, like job and personal life skills, money management, spirituality, all that, right? Everything, yes. And what drives you to do it? I mean, you could do a lot of things with your life. Why do this? I feel like I'm effective at, at what I do. Uh, I feel like I can connect to these individuals like nobody else can. I believe this is what God wants me to do. And, and I believe he's given me a platform to serve him in this way. It's, I consider it an honor and, and I'm very humbled by, by doing what I do. But, you know, growing up, I never dreamt about being a director of a reentry program when I got big. Mm -hmm. uh, but I can tell you this, uh, I feel like I'm more in the center of God's will today than I ever have been my whole life, and I wouldn't change anything. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for sharing your story. Thank you. In our world today, nobody wants to be associated with people who do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing. I mean, you know that, right? If you do or say the wrong thing, your company may fire you, your friends may leave you, or at least act like they don't know you. Think about how different Jesus was. Jesus moved toward people in need. He moved toward sinners. In fact, in Matthew 25, he tells us that one of the ways that we can distinguish true followers of his versus those who claim to be his followers but really aren't is how they treat people in need, how they treat the marginalized and the outcast. Jesus says his true followers, they take care of, they show mercy and kindness to people in their moment of need. Jesus identifies himself so much with people in need that he says that when we help those who are outcast or marginalized or hurting, we're really helping him. And when we reject people like that, we're rejecting him. So Jesus says that when you visit the sick, you visit him. When you help those in prison, you're helping him. And that's really good news for you and me. It's good news that Jesus identifies with the needy, that he moves toward the needy, because that's you and me. We are the needy. We're the people who needed grace. We're the people who needed forgiveness. We're the people who were the outcasts and the marginalized, and Jesus came to rescue us. That's the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus comes and helps, shows grace, forgives, and then we turn around and extend that grace to others. That's the message of Christ. All glory be to Jesus.